This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex that you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the 1950s, it was not very common for an adult to be living on their own. In fact, according to U.S. Census data, just 1 in 11 U.S. households had a single resident at that time. Most people were married and having families. And people who lived alone were largely looked down upon, especially as they got older. They were often viewed through a lens of suspicion or even pity. It was kind of like, why aren't they married? What's wrong with them? Over the years, however, things have changed, and they've changed a lot. More and more adults are living on their own, and the marriage rate keeps going down. In today's show, we're going to dive into the rapid rise in single living in the United States and all around the world. We'll take a look at the numbers and dive into the reasons behind this change, including how attitudes toward both singlehood and marriage have shifted. Many people seem to have come to the same conclusion as my guest in this episode, who often likes to say that being single isn't as bad as people think, nor is being married quite as good as people think either. I am joined by Peter McGraw, a business school professor at the University of Colorado, Boulder. He hosts the podcast titled Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. He writes for Single Insights, The Science of Solos, and he hosts The Solo Salon. In 2014, Peter co-authored a book called The Humor Code. His latest book is titled Solo. This is going to be a fascinating and really important conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Are you passionate about building a career in sexuality? Look no further than the Sexual Health Alliance. With Shaw, you'll connect with world-class experts and join an engaged community of sexuality professionals from all around the world. Whether you're just beginning your journey or are in the process of building advanced skills, Shaw's comprehensive certifications, engaging events, and self-paced online training will move you beyond the basics and set you up to be a rising star in the field. Visit SexualHealthAlliance.com and start building the sexuality career of your dreams today. Hi, Peter, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks so much, Justin. Thrilled to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So we're going to have a two-part conversation about your new book titled Solo. And in this episode, we're going to delve into the rise of single living around the world. And in the next, we're going to talk about going solo and living your best life. So let's start with some statistics. Let's begin with what's been happening in the United States over the last half century or so when it comes to people's relationship status and living arrangements. So how have rates of marriage and living single changed in the U.S. in the last 50 years or so? Quite strikingly. So striking, in fact, I'm surprised more people aren't talking about it. So for some context, in 1960, 78% of adults in the United States were married and 90% would go on to get married and did so on average at age 21. So it was right out of the gates and right into a nuclear family model. Fast forward ahead, we now have half of U.S. adults, nearly half, uh, 127 million unmarried in the United States. And not all of them are headed towards marriage. So Pew Research Center projects that one in four millennials, for example, will never marry. 
And so we're seeing this rise of, of single living in the United States. And it's not just single living, but we're also seeing historic rates of people living alone around the world. So 28% of households in the United States are one person. And that's the most common household. It actually beats out two-person households, usually a couple, and then the nuclear family, which is now third. Obviously, that was number one in 1960. And so I think that's probably a great starting point for some of these stats. Quite shocking, I think. Yeah, and that's a big change in a pretty short period of time. And you're right that we do need to talk more about it. It's actually something I do talk about quite extensively in my textbook on the psychology of human sexuality. I have a whole chapter on relationships and relationship status. And one of the things I talk about in there is single living and this big dramatic rise we've seen in it in the U.S. in the last several decades. But this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon, as you alluded to. So how have rates of marriage and living single changed throughout the rest of the world during the same time period? And what countries today have the highest percentage of single-person households? Yeah, so let's talk about uh, Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries. So they actually had similar rates of people living alone in 1960. I think about, in Europe in general, about 10% of the population lived alone around that time. I like to say that Scandinavia is the best place to be single. I actually, for my book, I traveled to Stockholm for the Midsummer Festival, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak, to check out this phenomenon. And you see very high rates of unmarried people the rates of people living alone in places like Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden is over 40%. And that number creeps up above 50% in Stockholm, for example, nearly 60%, which is, again, quite striking. I'm happy to talk about why that's the case. But I think before we do that, this is not just a individualistic phenomenon. This is not just happening in countries that have a very strong sense of individualism, like the United States, Australia, Northern Europe, and so on. You're seeing this everywhere, even in collectivistic countries. So uh, South Korea, for example, is the seventh most collectivistic country. And you're seeing this rise of singles in their urban centers, most notably in Seoul. I like to say that Seoul is the singles capital of Asia. And this is a lot of like young people kind of wriggling free. But again, you're even seeing this in places like India, although it's much smaller and it's a much more fraught process. It's one where people are ha having to actively fight against tradition. But anywhere basically that you're seeing a country do well, you're seeing a country develop and you're seeing a country that treats its women in a more equitable fashion, you're seeing this rise of single living. It's pervasive. Yeah, so we're talking about a global phenomenon here. And again, pretty big shift all around the world in a pretty short period of time. So let's dive into some of the reasons for that. Now, as we said, you know, this is a global phenomenon, but single living isn't equally distributed around the world, as you kind of alluded to. You know, there are different 
pressures, different constraints that might affect whether or not that's an option for people. You know, the countries, the laws, the economy where you live are going to play a big role in whether people can live single. So as you just talked about, you know, in some countries like Sweden, there's a bigger social safety net that affords the ability to pursue options other than marriage. And you also mentioned South Korea, where in your book, you talk about how marriage is just really expensive to pursue, right? So tell us a little bit more about how Places like Sweden, South Korea, or other countries, how they have specific local circumstances that might propel more people into singlehood. Yeah, certainly. Um, so there's these universal phenomenons that we'll talk about, but there are sort of culture-specific ones. Scandinavia, all of the Scandinavian countries, but let's use uh, Sweden as a case study, provide this social safety net. That is that they give generous benefits at the individual level. So there is unemployment for people if they need it. There is free or inexpensive higher education. There is universal health care. And what this allows people to do is to choose marriage should they want to do it. That it's just much easier to make your way as an individual in these places. It allows you to take risks. It's why, you know, Sweden is a very entrepreneurial country, for example, because if you fail, you're not going to lose everything. So Swedes trust the state a lot more to look out for their self-interest. But again, these benefits are at the individual level, right? So in the United States, people will often have to couple up in order to get healthcare benefits because it's not through the state, but rather through an employer. And employers offer spousal benefits largely in the United States. Another thing that's very interesting about the housing side of it is that Sweden, Stockholm in particular, has a lot of inventory of one person apartments. It's just the sort of nature of the way the urban planning worked out, so much so that the tension in Stockholm is the people who have families, especially immigrants who are coming in and have families, finding apartments that are big enough for children and so on. And then the last thing about Sweden that I think is, is very interesting from a, a cultural standpoint is I spoke to the author of uh, the book, the, the Theory of Swedish Love. He talks about how Swedish culture has this tendency to be asocially social or socially asocial, that Swedes keep two balls in the air, so to speak. That is their solitude, their individual time, and their connections to friends, family, and the community. So they have something they call a, I think it's pronounced a FIKA, F-I-K-A-H, and it's a short coffee meeting, right? We're just going to meet for coffee and connect and catch up, but then we're going to go on our own ways. And of course, as you, as you know, this creates this little bit of a flywheel, right? So people are able to spend time on their own. They're able to live alone. They can recognize those benefits, but then it also allows them to be a good partner, a good friend, a good son, a good mother, whatever that may be. And then when they are connected, they can be very present and enjoy that. And then they can split off and do this and then rinse and repeat in that sense. I mean, for me as a solo, it's quite appealing, <laughs> except for the short days in the winter, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to write a book at some point where I get to travel for it and go to Scandinavia and do some research because that sounds pretty nice. 
Yes, I already have an idea for your next book. <laughs> it's uh, visiting sex clubs around the world. <laughs> you know, I have had that thought before. So yeah, so the local circumstances matter a lot here. And you know, you mentioned like in the United States, the situation is very different. Like I know a lot of people in my life who have gotten married for the sake of convenience, you know, because they needed to join somebody else's health insurance policy or because there was some tax benefit or something else. And so you, in places like the U.S., there is more pressure to get married just because that's sort of the way the system is designed. You know, it's it's a world that's meant for couples as opposed to individuals. And, you know, that's a whole issue that you have a, an entire chapter devoted to in your book. Yeah, indeed. And I would say that there are some kind of universal things. I alluded to them earlier, which is a great predictor of the rise of single living and especially the rise of living alone is country GDP, right? So just the more money available, the more economic opportunities you have, the more ability you have to choose a single life. And so the United States is actually a little bit lower than it ought to be you know, using that as a predictor than compared to other places. And the countervailing factor is South Korea and other places that put a very strong weight on a traditional lifestyle, a lifestyle of high achievement, go to a very good university, perform very well, get a good job, whether as a civil servant or, you know, working for Samsung you know, make money, achieve, pursue socioeconomic status, keep up with the Joneses or the Gangnam Joneses in the case of South Korea. And I think that there's two problems with that. And the Han jokes, which is this young creative class of individuals that are going solo in South Korea are really keenly aware of that. And the first one is, that's a tough life. It's a challenging life. It is a grind to do this. There's a lot of parental pressure. This is expensive. It takes a lot of time. You have to make a lot of sacrifice in order to do it. And as a scientist, you know, the data on this is that material possessions, money is an imperfect predictor of happiness, you know, and that the people end up doing this. And then, you know, to quote David Byrne, you know, is this my beautiful house? Is this my beautiful wife? You know, how did I get here? And so there's, there's this kind of unraveling that's happening that the South Korean dream or the American dream is actually, A, a path to happiness, and certainly, B, not the only path to happiness. And so these Han jokes are often very creative individuals. They tend to be artistic. You know, they have other interests and hobbies, and they, they want to live a little bit more of a I hesitate to say the word leisurely life because as an American, it can be very easy to look down on that idea, but a more balanced life in that sense. And so some of them are just opting out. They're like, this is not right for me. I, you know, I look at my parents. I don't want to be my parents. And as I like to say, I like the idea of living in a world that's not all engineers and it's not all artists, right? I want half artists and half engineers, and I think that that's sort of that rebalancing of this one path to a remarkable life is being questioned, again, even in these very strict countries. But again, South Korea doing very well economically. And there is a, not as much of a social safety net, but there's still the ability to get by on your own 
there versus still other places in the world. Yeah, you bring up a lot of interesting points, and I'm glad you brought up the point about GDP for a country and how as that rises, you tend to have more people living single. And it goes back to, and I know you mentioned this in your book, but I had Eli Finkel on the podcast a while back and we talked about his book, The All or Nothing Marriage and Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs and how, you know, when you apply that to relationships, when you have the basic survival needs met and, you know, as GDP rises and wealth for the average person in that country increases, you know, their basic survival needs are likely going to be met. And so then when it comes to relationships, they're going to want and need a bit more. They're looking for something beyond just survival, right? And so, you know, that's sort of part of the story here in terms of as people are more economically able and it's a choice for them where they can feasibly live single, then they don't have to get married. And, you know, as you also mentioned, a lot of people also seem to be disillusioned with marriage, right? Because they see what's happened to their parents. And they're also seeing a liberalization in terms of attitudes toward things like divorce. Like there's no longer that pressure where marriage has to be this lifelong thing. And so I think a lot of people also feel like I don't have to stay in it for that reason, or I don't have to get married for that reason. Indeed. And I think it has to be noted that one of the major drivers of this, whether it's Europe, the United States, Asia, is the rise of women more generally. That what we're seeing compared to 1960 even is women have many more educational opportunities, many more economic opportunities, right? So, 60% of universities in the United States at the undergraduate and graduate level are actually populated by women now. And we no longer live in a world, even culturally, where they basically went from being the property of their father to the property of their husband, right? And so even the, the act of the father walking his daughter down the aisle and giving her away is a remnant of a time of an arranged marriage where she was treated like property and she couldn't own her own property. And only until very recently, I think early 1970s, you know, women weren't allowed to have their own checking accounts, couldn't have credit cards. Essentially their husbands owned anything that they owned. And don't even get me started on marital rape that essentially these head and master laws were so oppressive that women have been able to wriggle free of this patriarchy. And when you give women access to education and you give them access to economic opportunities, a non-trivial number of them decide, well, now that I don't need a man, maybe I don't want a man, or at least I don't want him as young or as long or whatever it is. It gives them greater freedom. And so some of this rise is due to the rise of women. 80% of divorces are initiated by the wife. It's 90% for educated women. And so women are asserting their independence and they're fighting back against this oppressive system, uh, you know, that started with arranged marriages and treated women as property. And so that I see. And so when people lament the rise of single living, that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, I'd like to point to two things. I'd like to point to that fact, that the rise of women is a major contributor to this. And the other one is that the world's happiest places have the highest number of singles, right? The Sweden, Finland, Denmark, et cetera, are perennially among the 10 best places to live. And so the story about that the world's becoming worse off because of the rise of singles just doesn't hold water. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So something else that I want to talk about here is how, you know, being single and living alone has historically been frowned upon, you know, and certainly not celebrated. I think that's well exemplified by a famous line from Carrie Bradshaw in Sex in the City from a couple of decades ago, which goes like this. She said, if you're single after graduation, there isn't one occasion where people celebrate you. Hallmark doesn't make a congratulations, you didn't marry the wrong guy card. <laughs> <laughs> and where's the flatware for going on a vacation alone? Right. However, you know, attitudes are changing somewhat. You know, for example, in your book, you open it with a story about how you threw a bachelor party for yourself, even though you weren't getting married. And you told your friends that they could skip the real one if you ever were to get married. And I think Carrie Bradshaw would be proud of that. Yes. So <laughs> I'm curious for your take on the degree to which you see the acceptance of singles is having increased and, you know, how much stigma is there still attached to being single? I mean, there certainly is still stigma, stereotyping, and discrimination. Luckily, it does not rise to the levels that still exist with regard to sexism, racism, heterosexism. You know, it's just mild enough that the average single person who feels it may be annoyed by it, but might not even recognize that it's wrong to do because there's not enough conversation around how single living and partnered living should be equated with regard to status. I think that one of the things that is happening, obviously we're seeing books and resources starting to come out. There's a podcast, for example, Spinsterhood Reimagined by Lucy Meganson, you know, that didn't exist just a few years ago. A Single Serving by Shaney Silver. Bella DePaulo, who's done a lot of research on this, identifying this term singleism and debunking a bunch of the myths. You know, she has a community of single people on Facebook. I've started my own community uh, for people who listen to my podcast. And so I think that there are more resources now. And then there's a whole bunch of like memoir style books about people's own personal story and journey through the world of dating relationships and, and sometimes ultimately choosing themselves. Uh, So I think that's very exciting. I actually think, too, that you're starting to see one of the reasons that single living is rising is um, I tell the story in the book about when I was a young boy living in kind of suburban South Jersey, kind of lower middle class town. There was one bachelor in the neighborhood and he drove a Trans Am and he grew weed. His name was George. And people thought he was like, what's up with this guy? I mean, he probably was in his late 30s. You know, he was certainly at the stage where he would normally have had a 12-year-old in that time. And first of all, now I think I'd be friends with George. Like, we would get along swimmingly. But now there's lots of Georges out there, right? So if you're considering the life of a bachelor, the life of a spinster, as I use that term with uh, endearment, you now have Lucy Meganson, you have Peter McGraw, you have these people who are thriving, living remarkable lives, unapologetically unattached. And so you now have role models. And so I like to say that singlehood's kind of contagious, right? It kind of singles beget singles and happy singles beget happy singles. And so I think that that's like a very exciting proposition because now, again, I'm not anti-marriage. I want people to choose the path that's best for them rather than default into one that the world's saying, this is the only way to go. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm not pro being single or pro being married. I'm not pro monogamy or pro non-monogamy. I'm pro whatever relationship status or style is right for you. And so I think, you know, you say a lot of important things there where, yes, the stigma against singles definitely still exists, but things are changing in a lot of ways. There are more resources. And also there are just other broader things we can point to in society that demonstrate that the world is kind of opening up more to this idea. So, you know, one of them that I'm going to draw from your book is you have a chapter where you talk about the game of life, which was originally invented in the 1800s. And I remember playing that game as a kid in the 1990s. And the version that I played required you to get married and have kids along your way. There were all these milestones and hoops you had to jump through to, you know, get to your career and to buy your first house. And you really didn't have any freedom as a player. You know, it was just follow the path and that's how you win the game. Now, after I read that, I went and I looked up what the most modern version of the game of life looks like, and it's very different, right? So the 2020s version is drastically different where you can now choose whether you want to get married or not and whether you want to grow a family or not. So, you know, that's a pretty clear sign that times are changing and that, you know, for future generations, when they don't have as much of a societal imperative to say, you have to get married, you have to follow this path, I think we're probably going to see a bit more flexibility in terms of the paths that people end up choosing. Yes, indeed. I look forward to starring in the first ever single person rom-com <laughs> that doesn't result in a relationship escalator. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. I think it's, I think these are very exciting times. And I'll be honest, I so I launched the podcast four years ago. And as I was thinking about the book and I realized I didn't know enough about single living to write a book about it. And so I launched a podcast. And at that time I thought, am I too early? And one of the things that made me think I was too early was that in 1974, uh, these two women, a journalist and a professor at USC published a book called the challenge of being single. And when I read that book, so many of the problems still existed. But in the meantime, in the last four years, I've seen this explosion in interest and resources. And so my joke is that if those two women were alive today, they would write a book called The Opportunity of Being Single. And I think that's a very exciting proposition. Yeah. I have one other question I want to ask you about this, which is that as we've seen this growth in single living, there's also been some backlash to it. And part of that has come at the level of governments around the world who are now worried that not enough people are getting married and not enough people are having kids. And so they're trying to incentivize people through government action to follow that more traditional path. Because in many ways, these countries have built their worlds for two people. You know, they built their laws, their economics, their housing systems around this idea that everybody's going to get married. And when you have this rise in single living, that's really a shock to the system. So I'm just curious for your take on this tension between individuals pursuing the lives that they want versus governments wanting us all to pursue this singular path that they built all their policies around. Yes, I'm so happy you asked this question because I'm actually writing about this very puzzle right now. And I, I feel like I'm on a collision course for a heated debate with Elon Musk about depopulation. <laughs> You know, my first reaction, and it's a little bit flippant, is it's not the individual's responsibility to save the world, to save society by having children, right? Like, it's like this idea that the individual is supposed to make this sacrifice, you know, for the world 
that may not agree with them, that may be difficult for them to do, I think is an unfair request. The second thing is this, is that we're living in a time where the world is changing so fast and the changes are not being fueled by government and they're not being fueled by religion as they used to be. They're being fueled by innovation and by cultural change. And so one of the things that's happening, one of the reasons for the rise in single living is that we're starting to just have inventions that make it easier to live alone. The invention of the apartment building is a game changer for singles, right? Small footprint, affordable, share common spaces, gyms, concierge, pools, et cetera, with a bunch of other people, you know, rather than living in a detached house, which, you know, is too much for them. And the idea that you're going to try to roll back through these old institutions that aren't keeping up, it's just a far-fetched idea. And so I'm happy to give families who have kids a tax break, right? Like I'm happy to support children. It's important for the growth of society. But incentivizing people to do this when it might not be in their interest, I think is the wrong way to go about doing it. What I am arguing for is we have to go back to understanding what makes a good society. And we have to start addressing those problems. So rather than using a nuclear family model as the solution, because we've tried it, it didn't work. Right? You know, Eli Finkel in his book talks about how satisfaction with marriage has been decreasing since 1960. Right. So even the people who are doing it aren't as happy with it. So my argument is we have to go back to first principles and think about, well, what does it mean to live a remarkable life as an individual? And, you know, fortunately, we actually have the answer to those questions. Right. Good health, economic opportunities, connections. Right. Not just one style of connection to one person, but broader connections to friends, family, community. Liberty, right? Actually not living in an oppressive environment. And so to me, the solution to this, it's not a solution to depopulation per se. It's a solution to having a well-functioning society is to try to encourage strong individuals who feel connected to the community and are contributing in myriad ways. Some having children, some doing science, some making art, Right. You know, we need our engineers building bridges and we need our artists making music. That's the world I want to live in. And if it has half as many people, I'm okay with that, especially because we're on the precipice of artificial intelligence. That if the promise is right, it's either going to destroy us all, anyways, or it's going to make our life so easy that we're going to be able to live that more leisurely life that the Han jokes are pursuing. And I think that's an exciting proposition, the latter, not the former. <laughs> yeah, it's an exciting and terrifying proposition <laughs> all at once. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing all of this, Peter. And I look forward to speaking with you in our next conversation about going solo and how to really live a remarkable life. That's going to be exciting. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. 
I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 